I have made you too small in my eyes Oh Lord, forgive me And I have believed in a lie That you were unable to help me But now, oh Lord, I see Welcome to Grace Community Bible Church. It's a privilege to see you. It's a privilege, is it not, to gather with brothers and sisters in freedom in this country and to be able to have this opportunity to worship. Welcome. If you are a visitor to Grace Community Bible Church, I hope you received one of these visitor packets out in the foyer. If not, you can grab one after the service, inside is a contact card that would love you to fill out, know how you heard about us, how we can pray for you, and whether or not you'd like us to follow up with you. So this is important uh, to do that as well. As we come now to worship, as I said, I, I'm especially thankful today for the gathering of the saints. I don't hear the sounds of shells going off right now. And we are not in danger of this building probably collapsing on us. Other brothers and sisters uh, in certain aspects of the world right now, especially in Ukraine, are not afforded that luxury today. And I would just plead with you to pray for the world, to pray for Ukraine, to pray for the church in Ukraine. My son-in-law, Maxim, is Ukrainian, and he, his heart is extremely burdened um, at this moment for his country. And I'm reminded as we begin this time of corporate worship of Psalm 46, and I'd just like you to quiet your hearts, quiet your minds and hearts, from the distractions and settle in to worship as I read Psalm 46. Set our hearts upon this truth. God 
is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob, our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the turmoil of this world, we remember that you are our stronghold. In the turmoil of this nation, we remember that you are our stronghold. Even in the turmoil of our neighborhoods, sometimes our families, and even in our own lives and struggles, we remember that you are our stronghold. You are our refuge and stronghold, not temporarily, Father. Thank you so much that your word says that you are eternally our stronghold. Father, we are reminded this morning, in the last few days, as if we haven't been reminded constantly, that this world is cursed by sin, that this world is an evil place, that this world is a place with much fear and can cause much anxiety to, to rise up in our hearts. So many changes in this world, in our own country, the last months. So many upheavals. And the nations now, Lord, are in an uproar. So we do pray this morning as a church for Ukraine. We pray especially for our dear brothers and sisters, and there are many in Ukraine. We pray for them. We pray for the church in Ukraine that you would hear their cries as they sleep for minutes a night in the shelters, that you would hear them as they mourn the destruction of their buildings or the death of friends and family. I pray for the destitute, that you would hear the prayer of the brokenhearted. Be with them, Father. Thank you for what your word says right here. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The Lord of hosts is with us. Be with 
our dear brothers and sisters, Lord, as they even today are so intent and so excited to gather for worship. Protect them today. Preserve them. Make the gospel to go forth from their mouth and through their acts of love for even their enemies. And may we all, as we consider this and pray for this, and as we gather as a church family this morning, remember that this time together is a taste of heaven where the glad city of God is with the river of life flowing through it, the dwelling places of the Most High, and that, as your word has promised, that God is with us. And so we say together, we will not be moved. The Lord of hosts is with us. And so, Father, we are excited to come together this morning to worship, to behold the works of God and the word of God. May we put aside our own sin, May we repent of it even now. May we put aside being bored. May we put aside being distracted. May we be quick, Lord, to repent. And may you increase our faith today. May you increase our love for one another and for our enemies. And may we, in a way, fulfill Psalm 46 in this next hour and cease striving. In so many different ways, cease striving and know of a settled knowledge that you are God. And may we believe that you will be exalted among the nations in this whole earth. And please help us now to know that your church is connected to the fulfillment of Psalm 46. And help us now then with that kind of truth and with this kind of joy to rise up and worship to sing from our hearts, and to listen to your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. So God is sovereign over everything, and he is our king, not only our king, but our risen king. So let's stand if you're able to stand. Um, here we do ex exalt God and give him praise and glory. and You can do that in a number of different ways. Um, that can be internal or you can be outward. But whatever it is, have your mind on praising him and not what's going on around you. So let's sing together.
seated, I think. Good morning, everyone. Scripture reading today is found in Luke chapter 6, 
That's on page 1027 in your pew Bible. We'll begin in verse 20. That's Luke 6, starting in verse 20. Jesus is speaking. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, I pray for our offering now. I pray that your people would be faithful to give to you. I pray that people would be faithful to give online. I pray that people would be faithful to give through the mail. I pray, I pray that people would be faithful to give through the offering boxes in the back, 
Lord. But I pray that your people would give and that we would be able to, as a church, accomplish great things through your gifts. I pray that your gifts would enable us to continue to improve this facility, Lord. I pray that your gifts would enable us to faithfully support the people who work for us, the elders of this church, the pastors of this church, the missionaries from this church, Lord. I pray that your gifts would enable us to support them well and faithfully. And I pray most of all, Lord, that, that the people's gifts today and this week would enable us to really do your work in this community, Lord. So I pray for a good offering, Lord, a good offering that's pressed down, shaken together, and running over, that we may do good in your name, and that we may faithful carry, faithfully carry out your will in this community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, please stand if you're able to stand again. Now we're going to sing a, a, an old hymn, I guess. I think it's old. It has 11 verses. We're going to sing five. <laughs> and it's rejoice ye pure in heart. And you know, no matter what happens, what's going on in our lives, we can always rejoice. And I love how this, these verses tell the story kind of along the way. So let's do that. Sing me. 
seated. Heavenly Father, we now turn to your word and we say with the psalmist that your word is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true. And we know that to be true, but I ask that you would stir our affection so that we would be able to also say that these words, even that those words that are convicting, that assault our own sin and, and self and that lead us to repentance that are difficult to hear perhaps would be more desirable than gold, that these words and sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. We, re, we are reminded that by your word we are warned and in keeping them there is great reward because we cannot discern our errors. Please acquit us, Lord, of hidden faults, and keep us from presumptuous sins. Don't let sin rule over us, Lord. And we know that as we come to this time, the preaching of your word, this is one of the most important means to help us turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. And so we pray with the psalmist as we have prayed before that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in our redeemer, our redeemer's name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Roger Uterin were missionaries that traveled to the Ecuadorian rainforest, an attempt to reach the Aka people for Jesus Christ. This was an isolated tribe that was known for their violence and a people group who were uncontacted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, these missionaries went over there. They began to, to make an effort Lots of planning. They made regular flights over the settlements. In the fall of 1955, they, they were dropping various gifts with the plane. And, and those gifts were reciprocated so that some confidence was starting to generate in the missionaries to make first contact. In January 1956, the missionaries established a camp along a sandbar at the Kurare River, just a few kilometers from the tribe's settlement. But the effort to reach this tribe, it would seem, came to a brutal end. January 8, 1956, when all five of those missionaries were attacked and, and speared by a group of Aka warriors. The news of their death spread really all around the globe back in that day. After the death of these missionaries and 
This is what you might not remember from the story. After the death of these missionaries, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, and Rachel Saint, the sister of another of those killed, were determined to carry on. They were determined to reach these killers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in God's providence, they planned and they prayed and they, were, they took the time to learn the language. And then a breakthrough came about two years later when they made a contact with, with one from the tribe that was somehow outside of the tribe and they found their way uh, and their opportunity to maybe make connection and to visit the tribe. And Elizabeth Elliot admitted that taking her three-year-old daughter, Valerie, strapped to her back into the Aka settlement was, quotes, the biggest test of faith ever, end quotes. The journey took to get into the settlement a few days by canoe and trail paths. But through the efforts of these women who had lost their husbands and their family members, God brought salvation to the Aka Indians and to those who held the spears that day. And a church was established among that tribe. You can read Elizabeth's book and, uh, Through the Gates of Splendor. Why in the world would Elizabeth... And Rachel go back to this tribe who had killed her husband, her brother. Why? The answer is found in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 6. Take your Bibles and turn to page 1027 to Luke chapter 6 and find verse 27. Luke chapter 6 verse 27. The answer as to why Elizabeth went back was because she loved her enemies. She loved her enemies. Luke chapter 6, find verse 27. This is Jesus' sermon, first one, first lengthy sermon in the book of Luke. And we've been unpacking love for enemies, and this is our third of a three-part series in verses 27 through 38. We started with the reality of love for enemies in verses 27 through 31. Look at it. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. What does that look like? That means it, it means doing good to those who hate you. It means blessing, verse 28, those who curse you, praying for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Love for enemies does not retaliate, but is ready. It's ready to give. It's ready to serve. It's ready to give. And it's summed up, this reality of love for enemies. He's summed up in verse 32. 
or I'm sorry, verse 31, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And so we looked at the reality of love for enemies, and then we moved on, but why? And that is the reason for love for enemies. We gave three from this passage. The first was because you're radically different. Look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But we're different. We're not sinners. We're not in this category. Whatever category Jesus is saying, we're radically different. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. That's just natural. That's not supernatural. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. He's saying, let me tell you the motivation here. You're radically different. You need to remember who you are and be who you are. So the first motivation to love for enemies is that we're radically different. The second one is that we will be rewarded eternally. Look at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And here's a motivation. And your reward will be great. And then he moves on to the deepest motivation of all for love for enemies. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your heavenly Father is merciful. He's saying it's not just that you're radically different. It's not just that you'll be rewarded eternally. Let me tell you how radical it is. You've been regenerated. You have a new relationship, and you can call God your Father, your sons and daughters of the Most High God. And therefore, if you have the same spiritual DNA, you resemble your Father. It's kindness for Him. It's kindness for you. It's mercy for Him. That's His very heart. That is your heart. You are a son or daughter. You resemble him. Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. And what some people do, they make a big mistake in Jesus' sermon to move on from love for enemies at the end of verse 36. Not so. Verses 37 and 38 is the big culmination of love for enemies. Not only the reality of love for enemies, not the three reasons for love for enemies, but we move on in verses 37 and 38 to the third R, a readiness to love our enemies. What makes you and me ready to love our enemies? That's the question that we want to answer in verses 37 and 38 here this morning. But let me start by saying that this section, I need to prove this to you, that verse 37 and 38 is all about loving our enemies. It does not stop at verse 36, but the thought continues. Why do I say this briefly? Well, verse 39 says, and he also spoke a parable to them, and then he goes on to the blind men and the teaching and the log and all the other stuff. The break is between 38 and 39. Second reason that 37 and 38 belong. The text actually says in verse 37, and, it's not in the English, it's in the Greek, 
and do not judge. There's a continuation in the language itself, and I think there's a clear connection to the rewards mentioned in verse 35 with the gift of full measure in verse 38, and the word give sums up the activity of love in verse 38, and that exact word is used in verse 30 and other places. This is connected. We have the reality of love for our enemies, the reason for our love for our enemies. But then we have a, an interesting bridging section, the readiness for our love, for, to, to love our enemies. What makes us ready? And we find the answer to that in verse 37 and 38. Let's read it. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So remember, Jesus is speaking to true disciples of Jesus Christ. He's speaking to disciples. There's a big crowd. Some are true, some are false. He's helping us to discern this. Who's really a disciple of Jesus Christ? That is the very point of the entire sermon, is to discern discipleship. Are you a blessed man, or are you under the curse? It looks like love. Next week, it looks like integrity. And finally, it will look like obedience. We will know. We will be able to discern who is a disciple. But you have to understand what he's trying to say is this. A true disciple isn't just skin deep. There's been a radical heart change. There's been something big. You're a son of the Most High at the very deepest level. Your heartbeat is his heartbeat. The kindness and mercy of your Father, this heart of God is in you, this heart of mercy and kindness. And that heart is going to spring forth in actions, in actions of love, agape love, actions of love, and words of love externally. But what bridges the gap? And the answer to what bridges the gap is verses 37 and verse 38. What makes us ready? What connects the heart with the actions? And I'll give you, there are four attitudes or dispositions of the true disciple. In verses 37 and 38, they connect this heart of kindness and mercy with the outward expressions of the love of God in this passage. And so we see then, listen, a negative pair of attitudes and dispositions and a positive pair of attitudes of dispositions that flow from a new heart of mercy and kindness that produce by his power supernatural love for your enemies. So let's look first at the negative pair, and let's answer these questions. How are we ready to love our enemies? What is the disposition that actually leads to this, that flows from mercy and kindness? Number one, how are we ready? By not being judgmental. That's how. First, by not being judgmental. Verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Stop there. Our Heavenly Father has caused us to be born again. We've been made as we'll find out, a good man out of the good treasure of a heart, and we're a good tree, we bear good fruit, 
Now, true disciples are like that, and God's made us kind and merciful at our very hearts. And so, it expresses itself in loving our enemies. But it's bridged by this first disposition, not being judgmental. How do we love our enemies? We are not being judgmental. By not being judgmental. Immediately, we spend all of our time telling what this doesn't mean, and so we miss the power of it. So I'm going to be very brief about what it doesn't mean. If you want to say, well, what does it mean? You know, I'm supposed to be judgmental. I'm supposed to discern truth. I'm supposed to, you know, call a spade a spade. I'm called to even make a judgment on the state of people's souls by looking at their fruit. Jesus will get to the log. He'll get to the speck. It's a completely different context. Yes, we're called to be judgmental and discerning in that sense. I mean, for crying out loud, the whole point of the sermon is to discern with this crowd of disciples who's in and who's out. So, of course, we're called to make that kind of discernment. But isn't it ironic that how we discern whether we're a true disciple is by not being judgmental? That's irony. So, What does it actually mean to not be judgmental in this context that produces love? Here is what it means. It's an attitude here that is hesitant to condemn and quick to forgive. Um, it, it It is being judgmental is when you have this perspective towards others that struggles with just holding them down and pressing their guilt in their face, loving to be right, loving it so very much, never seeking to encourage them towards God. It's hesitant to think the best. There's an arrogance in this judgmentalism that reacts with hostility to the worldly, with hostility to the morally lax, viewing such people, as one has said, beyond God's reach. So what is being condemned here is a prideful posture that is superior to others, that, that is hardened towards others, that, that is focused on seeing the sin in others and is absolutely blind to your own sin, which he'll get to in the first parable of the blind leading the blind. Blind to it. Not willing to see it and certainly not have it pointed out to you. That is what it means here. Your heart is contempted, has a, is filled with contempt towards sinners, is merciless towards sinners, so that you're never ready to forgive and express this act of love towards your enemies. And what's ironic is this. This is the irony. The very sins that in the flesh we, not, by, not when we're in the spirit, but when we're in the flesh, the very sins that we find so disgusting in others or want to be critical of others are the very sins that we struggle with. We'll get to the log and, we'll get to the, the log and the speck next time. That's the irony. If you struggle with pride, you hate pride in others. Almost certainly. 
almost certainly. David was just like this. David the king. Remember this story? David and Nathan the prophet? Okay, so Nathan the prophet, about a year later, confronts David the king after his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. So Nathan, about a year later, tells David a little story. Nathan comes to David, hey, David, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you the story of a rich man, a very, very rich man, David. He took the beloved sheep of a very, very poor man, David. He took it from him. And the rich man, to save more money, slaughtered that poor man's sheep to feed his guests. And David was ready to rip his tie off, rip his suit coat off. He was ready to bring the hammer down. He was so ready to condemn that in 2 Samuel 12, 5 through 7, he says, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. And David repented, blind to his own sin. Blindness to your own sin and propensity to pound sin in others is typically the sins you struggle with. And that's what it means to be judgmental. Let me talk about what some other pastors say. Kent Hughes says, quotes, the greedy, how does he define this? The greedy, the greedy delight... The greedy delight, for example, to condemn greed in others, in quotes. Or, or as one has said, it's the type of person who avoids self-examination and highlights the, fault, the faults of others. Or, as I'm trying to sum this up for you, there's always a taste of bitterness in their mouth. There's always a delight, just a subtle ever ice cream delight in the detection of other people's faults. Another pastor defines judgmentalism like this, quotes an individual who puts the worst possible coloring on other people's motives, pours cold water on their schemes and dreams, is ungenerous towards them when they make mistakes, end quotes. I mean, the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's a good example. Remember, the Pharisee, they're both coming into the temple. The tax collector is a horrible sinner, but he's there. And the poor tax collector, he's being convicted. He won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. Tears are streaming down his cheeks. He's beating his breast in repentance before God. And the Pharisee's front and center with his hands held high. God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else, especially like that guy over there. That is the very heart of judgmentalism. And this is very convicting for all of us who have new hearts with remainders of indwelling sin. Raise your hand if you have a new heart, but inside is the remainders of indwelling sin. Okay, so this is very convicting for the likes of us. We long to show mercy and kindness to others, but we find within ourselves a principle, a fallenness. 
a battle where we, for whatever reason, you know it to be true. We speak things that are hypercritical. We're rude. That's a, men, men, this is why you're rude to your wife. Can't you figure out how to... After all that I... This is why we're rude to our wife. This is why we're rude to our children. They, we think they can't get it together. We're hypercritical and impatient, and so we tend to say untrue things, unnecessary things, unkind things. We find fault. We're without mercy. We're without kindness. And in this context, because of all of this, because of this attitude and disposition, we are without love. May we remember, brothers and sisters, this would go a long ways. May we remember that you and I and we are not qualified to read each other's hearts. We are not. You are not qualified to read other people's hearts. We cannot accurately assess each other's motives, nor situations. We cannot. If you think you can, you're struggling with this, with this very sin. And this leads us naturally to our second disposition or attitude that flows out of a heart like our Father, a heart of mercy and kindness, and that disposition that will make us ready to produce fruits of love. How are we ready to love our enemies? Verse 37, by not being condemning. Verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged, and do not condemn and you will not be condemned. This is not quite synonymous with do not judge, but it is quite close. It's the natural outflow of the first one. And so what this means is this condemnation of people is the natural end game of judgmentalism. It's where you pronounce them guilty and without hope. You write them off. So you are so elite spiritually. You have a finger. Men, I'm, I'm pointing at you. You're so elite spiritually. You have a finger on the heart of your family, your children. You got a finger on the pulse, don't you? And on your coworkers, and on your friends, and on your neighbors. And especially, my favorite, is on the church members. You've got your finger on the pulse. You're the judge. Here's what condemnation is. You are the judge, you are the jury, and you are the executioner. That's what this word means. And usually, as Jesus will love... I, I, I'm hoping we get out of this sermon quick as well, by the way, because Jesus gets nasty when he goes to the tongue next sermon. But this often happens with the tongue, does it not? He says, love your enemies in verse 27, do good to them. Then he says, bless those who curse you. Don't curse them or condemn them. Bless them instead. How do we do this? By putting off this judgmental disposition and be merciful and kind as our heavenly Father is merciful. And with our tongues, it's so easy to sin in this area and to curse and not bless and to pronounce condemnation. 
we destroy the reputation of others. In Christian circles, in churches and in Christian circles, we are pretty clever with condemnation. Very clever with condemnation. We have all kinds of cliches with our condemnation, like we're concerned with the glory of God, and then we pronounce some sort of personal condemnation. Sometimes condemnation comes in the form of prayer requests. Always at the heart of the expression of judgmentalism and condemnation, you won't be able to get away with it. Your tongue will betray you. Jesus will say this, your tongue will betray you, and gossip and slander will be the fruit of judgmentalism and condemnation. There's no mercy, there's no kindness, and therefore there will not be love, there will not be blessing, there will be cursing, because we have forgotten. We've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten, like the people that Titus wrote, what we've been saved from. We've forgotten and so Titus helps us. And he says in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? Why? For we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But something's happened. We're not the same. We've been radical. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He poured out his grace for us. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And this is who we are. We're sons of the Most High. We're kind and merciful. We have the very heart of God. And so we can love. And what does that look like? What is the, what is the bridge? Do not be judgmental. Do not be condemning. But let's do the positive pair. If you weren't sure what those mean, let me tell you by looking at the positive side. Number three, how are we ready to love our enemies? How are we ready to do this? Well... By being forgiving. By being forgiving. Pardon and you will be pardoned. I want to thank Pastor Paul for some of his notes on forgiveness that he's always posted to us back when he was a pastor here. So a lot of this comes from his material. The word translated pardon or forgiveness here means to release. To release. I think a good definition, not the only one, but a good definition of forgiveness is a promise of pardon. A promise of pardon. We forgive one another just as God has forgiven us according to Ephesians 4.32. And so when we forgive, then we are promising that we will not remember their sins anymore as God promised in Jeremiah 31 verse 34. So we're not going to use that sin that we have forgiven as the club of judgmentalism, the club of condemnation, the club of rejection, the club of retaliation. No, that means we will never use their sin against them. And practically what that means, brothers and sisters, if you forgive someone that you will not, re um, I will not remind you of this sin, I will not mention it to anyone else, and I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. You say, I know what you're thinking. 
We can only forgive someone horizontally if they've asked for it. Not in this passage. This is our enemies. This is our enemies. And I'm exegetically convinced of it. It's our enemies here. Therefore, I agree with you. I understand that. But I want you to say that. I want to just hear this. This is the attitude or disposition that flows from mercy and kindness. So we may not be able to fully reconcile everyone who sins against us, our enemies within this world, or some people even within this church. But what does the attitude look like then that allows us to continue to do good to them and to bless instead of curse and to pray for them? Well, we have forgiven them. That's it. There's an attitude, a disposition of forgiveness. There's no, therefore, there's not anger or resentment or ill will or bitterness or payback. We desire their best. So because of God, we went to extreme lengths to bring us to himself. We want to do everything we can do to bring these people to Jesus so they might experience the joy that we have in being forgiven. I like what Pastor Paul says in his notes. Biblical forgiveness is giving up the right to revenge. It is releasing the offender from your grip and clearing the record in your heart, not holding it against them. And if you have this forgiving disposition that doesn't judge it doesn't condemn, but instead forgives, you will be ready and able by the Spirit to produce supernatural fruit of love for your enemies and do good to them that hate you and bless them that curse you and pray for them that mistreat you because this forgiveness has happened. It's a disposition to not hold their sin to their account, to let it go. To release, to untighten your grip, to refuse bitterness. How in the world are you going to do good to those who hate you? How are you going to bless those who curse you? How are you going to pray for those who mistreat you? How are you going to love your enemies? I'll tell you how. It's a disposition that flows from the heart of mercy and love. What is that disposition that can't hold a grudge for the slap, for the scorn, for the shirt taken, for the hatred, for the robbery, that doesn't hold that grudge, that leaves no hold in the heart for bitterness. It's the disposition of forgiveness. So do you want to be able to have relationships with outsiders that absolutely drive you nuts, that sin against you and they don't even know it? The disposition of forgiveness. How about a good, a good marriage? Is this helpful for marriage? How about building bridges with sinners within the church? Forgive. That's it. That's the heart of it. Lord, please help us to see in our lives where we are harboring bitterness and holding grudges, and may we forgive as we have been forgiven. So much more we could say, but that naturally leads to the fourth and final disposition that flows from a heart of mercy and kindness. 
and that that will make one ready for tangible acts and words of love for our enemies. In fact, the next one is almost, is almost an inclusio at the beginning of the passage, verse 27 and 30, about giving. And it begins to go from just the disposition of the heart to actual activities as we get to this fourth one. But I still think it's a disposition. How are we ready to love our enemies? By being giving. By being giving. Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. The attitude of a disciple that has a heart, a new heart of mercy and kindness like their heavenly father is a heart that puts to death judgmentalism and condemnation and is willing to forgive and let it go. And when those things are in place, there's a readiness now that's beginning in your life, a readiness for love for our enemies. And that, connect, and, there, and that connection there is that generous spirit, a giving spirit that gives of their time, of their talents, of their treasures, that gives at great cost to themselves, that stretches themselves out at great cost to themselves to love even enemies. This is impossible. This is supernatural. Yes, it flows from a brand new heart empowered by the spirit of the living God. And so that's what this heart is. It's the heart of our Father, this giving heart. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave. A readiness to love enemies. Not judgmental, not condemning, rather forgiving and giving. Well, there is a warning and a promise here. We'll see how seriously we're going to take this. There's a massively important warning here for the Pharisees and those like the Pharisees who have all kinds of external religion but whose heart is far from God, who lack a heart of kindness and mercy, who are not poor in spirit, who have never been humbled to see their need for Jesus. Jesus warns about this hypocrisy um, in this passage that I'm going to read, there's a warning here. He'll continue to warn in the parables to come. In fact, the whole point of the parables is hypocrisy. The four that are rapid-fired in our next section. He is warning us. It's the same warning found in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You say, I don't get it. Where's the warning in our verses? Let's read it again and see if you can discern the warning. Verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. You see, if you're not a son of the Most High God, you won't resemble your father having that heart of mercy and kindness. Where, where forgiveness and generosity flows that leads to love. That's a true disciple. That is a true disciple. What I've been describing is true discipleship. 
Are you hearing me? That disciple is one who will not be judged. That is one who will not be condemned. That is one who will be pardoned. That is one to whom much will be given. Jesus is not teaching that a person can, after decades and decades and decades of hard work and loving, hard loving, trying their best, finally become a son of the Most High God and finally get that new heart they've always been trying for all these days. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we can finally become forgiven for sins by trying to forgive others. That would be salvation by works. That would be trying to earn becoming a son of the Most High. He's making a very simple point that in our desire to clarify it, we miss. Let this point be driven in by the Spirit. And listen carefully. Here's the simple point. Because Kent Hughes can say it better, I'm going to let him speak. Quotes, a forgiving disposition is evidence that a person has been forgiven. Close quotes. Now, you let that sink in, dear brother and sister. A forgiving disposition is evidence that a person has been forgiven. Or, if you like Alistair Begg, I always quote different preachers when I'm making a tough point, Dan. It's a tip for you. Alistair Begg says it like this. Quotes, an unforgiving spirit, and this is speaking of our attitude or our disposition, an unforgiving spirit is not simply harmful, It is, in the end, hopeless. Because the unforgiving person, this is Jesus speaking, is destined to everlasting punishment because of a refusal to forgive. Because of my refusal to forgive, I am saying that I have never truly discovered the forgiveness which God has made possible in the person of His Son. In quotes, for by your standard of measure... You will be measure, it will be measured to you in return. You want to be judgmental and condemning? Well, it's good exegesis, right? Boy, I'm the mailman. But here's another thing we miss. We miss that there's a promise here. This is actually meant to be encouragement to true believers. Let me read the Greek text for you. This is my own translation. I don't do this often. My own translation, and do not judge, and you will never, ever be judged. And do not condemn, and you will never, ever be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, having been pressed down, having been shaken together, and spilling over, they will pour into your lap. For by which measure you are measuring, it will be measured to you. So listen to this. This is about God. Men, you think you're going to not judge people and you'll never, ever, ever, ever be judged by your enemies? That ain't men. That's God talking there. Now, let me tell you what what God's good gifts to you, believer, is like. Well, let's say you're selling corn in the ancient Near East in Palestine, and you're the seller. You sit down like this. You got some sort of a container where you've got a measure of corn, and it's worth, you know, three ninety-five. Now, in today's economy, four ninety-five as of last week. 
So you've got this measure, and how do you give a fair seller? You want to have a good reputation. You want to really give them the amount of corn. So you take, you fill it up three-quarters of the way, this container between your knees, and you give it a good shakedown, and it settles down. And then you're really kind because then you want to say, hey, look, at this is how I sell everybody. And so you press it down. And then you pour more in. And then you might even poke holes and let out air so it settles even more. And then you're so concerned that you give a generous deal that you put more corn and you heap it up so that they might even be spilling over and then you hand over the full measure. And that's what God is saying, oh believer, this is meant to be not a warning. That's for the, the hypocrites. Are you one of them? Stop it. Repent. Become a true believer. Ask God for this heart. Ask God for this heart. But that warning is passed. This is for us. This is for believers. God the Father has lavished his grace and generosity from us. We are sons of the Most High now. We have a new heart. He's given us this as a free gift. And it's in full measure. He's not stingy. It's spilling over. Yes, we're meant to be encouraged. They hate us. They ostracize us for the sake of the Son of Man. But we love him, don't we? And God's saying, I see it. You are my son and you my, my daughter. They scorn for your name for evil. But he's saying, look, you may be in poor in spirit now. You may be humble, humble beggars now. You may be hungry and weeping now. But don't worry. I've pressed it down. I've shaken it together. It's overflowing. That's my heart for you, dear believer, God says. Yours is the kingdom of God. You shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. You are sons of the Most High. Did you catch the Greek text? You will never, ever be judged. You will never, ever be condemned. Can I get an amen for that? Never. That's the Greek text, double emphatic negative with the subjunctive. It is as emphatic as you can get in the Greek text. Never, ever. It's meant to be a promise. J.C. Ryle is right of our passage about a genuine disciple, but at the last he will always be found a gainer. Often, very often, a gainer in this life, certainly, most certainly, a gainer in the life to come. Because our reward will be great, because we are sons and daughters of the Most High, and because we have experienced full forgiveness, that there is therefore now no condemnation, because our sin has been judged in Jesus upon the cross of Calvary, because God so loved the world that he gave Jesus for us. We love because he first loved us. We forgive because he first has forgiven us. We refuse condemnation because therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We give because he has given to us. And so we've seen the reality of love for our enemies. It's the outward stuff by word and by action. We've seen the reasons. We're radically different. We'll receive an eternal reward. And we are in relationship with our Father and therefore resemble Him. And this heart of mercy looks like and something. It looks like you're not judgmental. You're not condemning. Instead, you have this forgiving disposition that is generous to give. And that then will produce the fruit of love for 
our enemies. This is, listen, one sentence summary. Here it is. If you didn't get anything else, here it is. Forgiveness, which flows from a heart of mercy, makes us ready to love our enemies. Let me say that again. That's the whole point. Forgiveness, which flows from a heart of mercy, makes us ready to love our enemies. Therefore, Luke 6, 27 through 38 explains why Louis Zamperini, a prisoner of war in Japan, brutalized for months by a man named, nicknamed the bird, came back with post-traumatic stress disorder and an, alco- an alcohol in his hand, but went to hear Billy Graham preach the gospel and was miraculously transformed, saving his marriage, saving his life. Only this passage and what I have spoken of from the Word of God explains why near the end of his life, Louis in 1998 returned to Japan and offered to meet his abuser, the one called the bird, because he wanted to share Christ with him. The bird refused to meet him, but Louis forgave him anyway and wrote a letter to him which ended with this, Love replaced my hatred for you, and I would hope that you would also become a Christian. Only Luke 6, 27-38 explains why Elizabeth Elliot went back to the Aka tribe. And make no mistake about it, Luke 6, 27 through 38 is the very heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, when bloodied and naked upon the trees, said of his enemies and to his enemies, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this very heart of Christ lives within us. As one has said, the life of God and the soul of men. And so, we love our enemies. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We cannot do any of this. This is supernatural. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this perfectly in my place, your whole life, every inclination of your heart, every disposition, and certainly every action and attitude was always aligned to the word and the will of God perfectly in my place. You've given me your righteousness. You've given my dear brothers and sisters your righteousness. You've given it to us as a free gift. We're clothed in the robe of the righteousness of Christ. We're forgiven of all of our judgmentalism, all of our condemnation, all of our, for, all of our lack of forgiveness, all of our stinginess. Oh, it's been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Oh, Father, thank you 
for sending your son Jesus to do the work that we have failed to do. But thank you that we are not only freed, Lord, from the penalty of that sin, but you've given us a new heart. You're changing us as we, as we gaze upon the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ and the word of God, as we gather as a church to sing songs of praise, encouraging one another, attending to the word of God and fellowship in the ordinances. It's no small thing. We're so grateful because this is the means to the end where you're showing us thy glory and transforming us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And thank you that, yes, we are half-baked, but we are still in the oven of thy grace, and you are not done with us. You will never be finished with us, for yours love upon us, Father, is an everlasting covenantal love. You are our eternal stronghold. And you delight to give good gifts to your children. We ask for the gift of thy spirit and the gift of change into the image of Christ. And we ask that we would bear more fruit of love in our lives. And that you would forgive us, Lord, of judgmentalism and condemnation and lack of forgiveness in our own lives. And teach us how to apply this passage. Lord, we know our lives are messy and this passage can, needs to be applied in unexpected and sometimes applied in ways that will be misjudged and condemned by others. Make us to hide in Jesus anyways and in his finished work as we apply this passage and move into this really challenging next passage as well. We pray for our dear brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We pray for our sister who is sick right now in the hospital that you would recover and her. We pray for Grace Community Bible Church and her leaders, her elders and her deacons, the church members, those who are wondering if this church is for them, that you would lead and guide them to make a decision that honors you, and that we would love one another, Father, and that this passage would characterize the, the family life of Grace Community Bible Church. We recognize, Father, that the devil would like nothing more than to destroy every church that preaches the Word of God. May he be hindered, even in the spiritual places now, and certainly as we keep our eyes upon Jesus and learn to forgive. Make us now, Lord, to be encouraged and strengthened by thy word and by thy saints, and by now the singing, that we would indeed lift our hearts and voices to, to teach and admonish one another, and that even the, the joy of song connecting to the truth of this passage would Encourage our hearts today, even into this week. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name.